Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. That's on page 899 of the ESV Pew Bible, so 12, 12 through 36. This is part of our ongoing series. We're making progress through the book of John. The series is titled Just That Simple because the purpose of the book of John is so that people would believe that they would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And it is just that simple to believe in Jesus. So our scripture passage is John 12, 12 through 36. Let me start reading then at at verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and it had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant, or there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that now as it is, is preached and proclaimed, we ask for understanding. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit 
We want to see and understand what's here. We want to apply it to our life. We want you to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a young couple at church who were invited over to some friend's house for some dinner. And so they went over, and the first thing that greeted them as they, they opened the door was, was a smell. It, something was burning. And they, they kind of poked their head around the corner and looked into the kitchen, and there was the, their friend Danielle, was her name, and she was standing with a dish towel and an open window, waving the, the smoke out, saying, I'm sorry. And they said, it's okay, it's fine. And they went in to sit down at the table, and, and they saw what had been burning. It was the bread. It was completely black. And she still served it. She said, I think if you kind of cut off the outside, you still might be able to eat what's in the middle. And then they cut into the meat, and the meat was undercooked. That, that was being polite. It was, it was raw, completely on the inside, and it was inedible. And Danielle again saw it, and she said, I, I am sorry, I am so embarrassed. Uh, this meal is a disaster. And she said, look, I want you to come back next week for dinner. And her husband said, she really is a good cook. And they kind of smiled politely and nodded. She said, no, really, I, I want you to come back next week. I, I think you're getting the wrong impression. I, I, I can't let that go. And after a few more words of insistence, they agreed. The next week they came back, and when they opened the door this time, an incredibly savory smell met them. And it made their mouth water. It made them immediately think, that this, this looks really good. This smells terrific. They went into the, the dining room and there was the meat on a platter and it was uh, you know, surrounded by vegetables and, and garnish and the presentation was a 10. It, it just looked incredible. They cut into it, it was tender, it was juicy, it was perfectly done. She served some potatoes, they were called potato medallions. They were, they were light, golden, crispy on the top, fluffy and white on the inside. They had some kind of butter, garlic, herb. And they said, Danielle, these are the best potatoes we've ever tasted in our entire life. And she said with a twinkle in her eye, see, I told you I was a good cook. I wasn't going to let that go. That's why I wanted you to come back. Have you ever gotten the wrong impression of someone? It happens. It happens for a lot of reasons. Maybe you don't know the person very well. Maybe they're kind of quiet and they don't really say too much, so you don't have a whole lot to base an opinion on or make an accurate impression. Maybe, maybe they're a public figure and you don't really know them that well, but you've read things about them and those things that were written gave you a wrong impression. Or maybe like Danielle, maybe you just catch somebody on an off day. In our passage, the Jerusalem crowds had the wrong impression about Jesus. It wasn't because they didn't know him for that long. He'd been ministering for three years publicly. It wasn't because Jesus was quiet and never really said that much because he told them, I've been in your temple day after day preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's not because they read something incorrect about him, because what they had read about him was in Scripture, and Scripture is an error. It is impossible for Scripture to be incorrect. And it's certainly not because they caught Jesus on a bad day. He was Jesus. He didn't have 
a bad day. He didn't have an off day. And yet, it's clear from the text that many people did have the wrong impression about Jesus. Specifically, they had a wrong impression about the Messiah, about who Jesus was claiming to be, the the Messiah King sent by God. And they had a wrong impression about his kingdom, the, the nature of his kingdom, what his kingdom was about. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're also going to see how it's possible today to still have a wrong impression about Jesus and his kingdom. So we begin with the triumphal entry. We've got verses 12 and 13. It says the next day, this is now the Sunday before the cross. He's heading to the cross. This is the last week. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that the the text talked about the, the people standing around in the temple area. And as they gathered and were standing in lines, there was an electricity in the air. There was some anticipation. There there was a lot of talk and a a lot of speculation about A, whether or not Jesus was going to come to the feast, and then B, what would happen when Jesus showed up. And here he is, coming to Jerusalem. So all that that hype, all that tension finally finds an outlet. And so they go out to meet him. And they're, they're kind of in this crowd frenzy. And they're coming out with messianic expectations. But as we're going to see, their expectations are based on a wrong impression. How do we know that? The text tells us. It says, number one, they came out with palm branches. These were used historically to celebrate the coming of a a military general as as they returned from a victory. Uh, These were used to to celebrate the, the entry of a earthly king. Secondly, the crowd was crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew. It means save us now, or give salvation now, or deliver us, please. But they weren't thinking deliver us from sin. They were thinking deliver us from Rome. That's what their expectation was. King of Israel clearly has messianic overtones. They were desiring a military political king. They were desiring a king like King David. King David came up. He had an earthly throne. He he went out and he met his enemies on the battle. He he killed people in in combat. That kind of a physical earthly king. And then finally down in verse 18, John comes right out and directly tells us why the crowd was there. He says, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. This sign means the raising of Lazarus. So they were coming out expecting a miracle worker. They were were coming out expecting a Messiah that had the power of God at his disposal and who would use that to to lift up uh, the, the nation of Israel and set up an earthly kingdom. So it should be clear, they had heavy messianic expectations but that was based on a wrong impression. They had a wrong impression of of Jesus. Their idea, Jesus would show up with divine power, clean house, lead the Jewish people to military, political victory, and establish nationalistic sovereignty. The reality, Jesus came as a suffering servant who would go to the cross 
and die for the sins of the elect, both Jew and Gentile, and then gather his people into his body, the church. Today, believers can still get a wrong impression of the king. Today, it's possible for for believers to still get a wrong impression about the kingdom of God. Uh, Just as the, the crowds were focused on physical, earthly, material, so also the church today can wander from scripture and start to focus on physical, earthly, material things. Instead of the invisible spiritual realm, the church can start to focus on the visible, physical, worldly realm. And that's when the problems start to happen. Is the goal of the church to transform cities? Did Jesus commission his church to make sure that that every student graduates from high school with a diploma? Is, is, Is Jesus commissioning the church to make sure every single person has access to affordable housing? Is is that what we're about? You see, if you think the church exists to transform your city or to transform the world so they become beacons of light with redeemed culture, art, and music, and no more crime, and no more poverty, and no more homelessness, with morally upright government officials who never act out of self-interest, with no more unemployment, a judicial system without flaws, a perfect educational system, a perfect healthcare system, and on and on and on. If that's what we think the kingdom of God is about, social transformation, some sort of utopian society, then you have the wrong impression of the kingdom of God. The crowd thought he was going to be a military political leader who would restore the national sovereignty. Wrong impression. But thinking that Jesus came to redeem culture and transform cities and eradicate all social ills, that's also a wrong impression. Different wrong impressions, but still both wrong impressions. But here's what they have in common. They're both focused on the physical, earthly, material world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. We know that because he tells us. John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. Now the overall betterment of society is a good thing, but that is not what the king came to do. And that's not what the kingdom of God is about. Jesus did not come to transform the world. He came to save the world, one person at a time. We're not called to transform the city. We're called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. It's a big difference. Jesus, in order to continue the work of his ministry, in order to continue to proclaim the gospel, in order to continue to make disciples, he established his church. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, his church goes forth and does those spiritual things. They proclaim the gospel. They make disciples. And as the church faithfully carries out her mission, people enter into the kingdom of God, a spiritual realm. And they are saved from the wrath of God. So let's make sure we have the right impression about our king and about what he has called us, his church, to do. 
The church is to go and make disciples. His kingdom is spiritual. If you think the kingdom of God is about the world and is of the world, then you have the wrong impression. Verse 14, John includes this detail about Jesus riding in on a young donkey. And and immediately he connects it with scripture to show the reader this is prophecy fulfilled. He says, just as it is written, and then what follows is a free citation of Zechariah 9.9, daughter of Zion, that's the people of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So, like I said earlier, a military leader, a general, would come into a city. They would ride a horse. They would ride a a war horse or a battle horse. Something that was swift of foot, powerful. They would not ride a donkey. Someone riding on a donkey does not communicate, I am coming for war. Someone riding on a donkey communicates, I am coming in peace. I am coming for peaceable purposes. So Jesus is the Messiah, and he is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, but he was not the type of Messiah they were expecting because they had the wrong impression. And then 16 and 19, that's just a collection of additional details by John. Uh, Even his disciples didn't fully understand what was going on. It says they would remember later and they they would figure it out. They're not putting all the puzzle pieces together at this point. And then he tells us again, the primary reason people were there was because they had heard this man works miracles. They wanted to be there when the next big thing happened. They wanted to see it. And then the Pharisees are still operating in crisis mode. We're gaining nothing here. Everybody's following this guy. The next section talks about Greeks who went to see Jesus. Verse 20, we're told that this was not just an influx of Jews. Remember the Passover was one of the high festival days of the year. Usually if people couldn't make all the festivals, they made this one. This was the most, the biggest festival of the Jews. People came from all over the place, but it's not just Jews. It was also Greeks. And when it says Greeks, it doesn't mean necessarily people from the country of Greece. It means non-Jews, so Gentiles. They also were coming in. And they were most likely, since they were showing up at Passover, something called God-fearers. These were Gentiles who were drawn and attracted to the God of Israel. So they, they became kind of a part of that, that, that group and, and, that, and that religious group. But they weren't ethnic Jews. They came and they worshipped Yahweh God. They, they started following him, but they still weren't allowed in the, the temple areas reserved for Jews only. They weren't circumcised. They didn't fully convert. So they were kind of kept on the fringe of worship. So they're there in Jerusalem for the Passover and they wanted to see Jesus. And it says first they went to Philip and then Philip went to Andrew and then Philip and Andrew went to Jesus. And the best explanation for that kind of communication relay is that um, Philip probably wasn't 100% sure he should bother Jesus with a request from the Gentiles. Uh, earlier, uh, Matthew 10 tells us that Jesus had specifically told them not to go to the Gentiles. So he was probably had that in mind, thinking, I'm not sure how this works. So he consulted with Andrew, and then together they said, okay, let's go and bring this to him. And then in 23 through 26, Jesus has been asked by the Greeks if they could see him. He, did, he doesn't give a direct answer here. He's answering them. But he's also answering everyone else. And what follows is Jesus saying, look, I hear you. You want to come see me. You're interested in following me. Before you do, 
I want you to be sure you know what you're getting into. I don't want anyone under the wrong impression of what it means to follow me. So let me clarify that for you with what I'm about to say. Let me tell you what it looks like to follow me. So first he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what has Jesus and John repeatedly told us throughout this book so far? His hour had not yet come. John 2, 4, my hour has not yet come. John 7, 30, because his hour has not yet come. John 8, 20, because his hour had not yet come. And now Jesus is saying, it's here. I know what we've been saying in the past. I I know that I've been putting it off. Now the hour is here. It it has come. That's it. And, And at this point, if somebody's operating under the wrong impression, if someone still has that militaristic, political earthly ruler, um, uh, event, you know, get rid of the Romans, that kind of like leader, this was music to their ears. They're like, all right, finally, let's get the ball rolling here. Yeah, okay. Um, do you want us to take the temple first? Or yeah, grab both swords. He said there's hours here. Let's go. Do you want us to secure the city gates? Just give the order, Jesus. No. Truly, truly, this is what he's saying. My hour has come. Truly, truly. Remember, everything Jesus says is important, but Jesus doesn't assign special importance to everything he says. Whenever he says truly, truly, you know that's a, that's a clue to, to focus in on what comes next. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. That's a pretty straightforward illustration from creation. If you hold on to a seed, if you hold on to a grain of wheat, and you never put it into the ground, well then it's not going to bear fruit. You're never going to get wheat back because you're holding on to the seed. That's that's pretty straightforward. You have to lose the seed to gain the wheat. And then he takes that illustration and immediately puts spiritual meaning to it. The seed is someone's life. You have to lose your life. Loving your life or holding on to your life and you're never going to see eternal life. You're you're never going to see spiritual fruit. If you hold on to your life, you're going to lose everything. You're not going to gain anything. But if someone hates their life, and, and by the way, love and hate are being used here comparatively. He's not saying you have to beat yourself up and feel really down and find every aspect of your life despicable. That's that's not what he's saying. He's, He's contrasting the two. So if someone hates their life, in other words, if someone loses it, if they throw that seed in the ground, if they die to themselves, then they're going to gain everything. They're going to get it all. They're going to gain eternal life. And he's telling them, I don't want you to get the wrong impression about what it means to follow me. If you follow me, this this is what it's going to look like. I'm, I'm going to lay a complete claim to your life. You don't get to live for yourself anymore. You, you live for me. You get to hold on to nothing. It all goes in the ground. It all gets buried. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant, there will my servant be also. He's saying, if you want to be my disciples, you need to go where I'm going to go. Well, where's Jesus going? To the cross. The hour has come. He's going to his cross. He's, he's going to his death. Jesus is going to lose his life, be buried in the ground. Jesus is about to live out the seed illustration he just gave. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. For those that follow Christ and serve him, for those that lose their life, throw it into the ground, the Father will honor him. Those who commit to following Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. At the end of their life, when all is said and done, the Father will raise them up. The Father will lift them up. It will become evident for eternity that they have gained everything. So I need to ask, do you have the right impression about what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Or do you have the wrong impression? Do you think it's still possible to hold on to your life or a part of your life and still be a follower? Do you have this wrong impression that you can keep back maybe a a, a small seed and not throw it into the ground? And still expect to bear fruit? Because the sad reality is this. For many Christians, we talk about losing our life. We we, we talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We talk about submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But then when Jesus actually exercises exercises Lordship over our life, we become confused. Or put off. Or angry. Or we resist it. What about dying to self? Dying to self, losing your life. That means continually. That means in an ongoing manner. This, this is not something we did once back when we came to Christ. Okay, we did that. Now let's move on and that's in the past. It's something we did. It's something we do. When Jesus talks about dying to self, he's talking about Daily. He's talking about for the rest of our life. Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So dying to self is not something we did a long time ago. It's something we do daily, continuously. Dying to self is something we do when it hurts. Dying to self is something we do when it's costly. Dying to self is something we do in the face of temptation. Dying to self is something we do when when our flesh is screaming at us to, to give up and to give in to our own desires. That's when we die to ourselves. There was a person that had a cancer diagnosis. And they went through all the treatment. They went through the the chemotherapy. They went through the radiation. They went through the surgery. They they got the whole package. They went through, and when they were through all of that, they got to a point where the doctors pronounced them cancer-free. And they rejoiced, as did their, their church brothers and sisters. Everybody was excited. They were praising God for answers to prayer. 
it was a it was a high point in in that that person's story and everybody rallied around them and then a few months later during a routine follow-up it had returned and everybody came came back down again and they they went to this person and they said I'm, i'm so sorry to hear that what are you going to do what where do you go from here what how is this going to impact you? And they kept, rightly so, and there's nothing wrong with those questions, but they kept asking about them, you, you. And the person responded consistently every time. They said, it's not about me. They said, I'm going to continue to serve Christ and worship the Lord to the best of my ability with the time that he has given me. That's dying to self. They could have said, yeah, you know what, I just... I appreciate it, but I think I just want to be alone. And they could have just kind of withdrawn and pulled in and, and, and stopped contact. They could have said, you know what? I know I don't have much time left. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the trip of a lifetime. I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do. I'm going to go to Australia. Or they could have said, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to have people over every night. I'm, I'm, we're going to go out and spend all our money. We're going to go out and... Uh, I'm going to go visit my relatives all over the country. They could have done anything they wanted, but instead they said, no, I'm going to continue to serve the Lord. And they poured themselves into worship and service in the local church. That's what they did. That is dying to self. That's dying to self. Dying to self is saying no to ourselves and yes to Christ. Dying ourselves to ourself is saying no to temptation when we're faced with it and yes to holiness. Dying to ourself is saying no to what we want, yes to the will of God. That's dying to self and we're, to call, we're called to do it daily. Jesus died to himself. Look at verse 27. After those solemn statements about dying to self, he shows us what it looks like. Now is my soul troubled And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's what dying to self looks like. He is distraught over the coming darkness. Jesus is about to face a level of suffering and agony that we will never be able to come even close to imagining or or to fathom. He is about to have the sins of the elect set upon him. The wrath of God for the sins of the elect set upon his head and he is going to take it all. And he's destroyed. And so he, he asks, uh, well, should I, should I push hard against the Father's will? Should I, should I resist it? Should I, should I just do everything I can not to obey the Father? No, of course not. He says, this is why I've been sent. This is the work that the Father has given me to do. This is very similar to the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It has many different similarity points. And each time, he's seeking the Father's will for his life above all else. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't shrink back. He squares off his shoulders to the cross and moves forward towards it. That's our Savior. That's the one who we put our faith in. The one who looks at the cross and leans into it and starts sprinting forward towards it. The one who obeyed the Father perfectly. When we fail, Jesus has succeeded. That's why we look to him. By his righteousness, we are saved. 
And then he says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son audibly in front of witnesses. And we might ask, well, well, how has the Father already glorified his name? In everything he's done, in all of creation, there, there is no act of the Father. The Father has never taken action that has not glorified his name. So everything, the mixed reactions in verse 29, some think it's a voice uh, thundering, uh, some think an angel has spoken. Jesus clarifies, verse 30, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, why would the voice be for their sake? So that they would believe. This is the purpose of the book of John. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book. That's the purpose of the voice. It's not for Jesus. It's so that people hear it and believe. So they hear it and they say, okay, that is the Son of God. I'm going to believe in him. Cross impact. Jesus speaks about the cross and the impact it has now, meaning the cross, is the judgment of this world in verse 31. How is the world judged by the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, from an immediate and close-up perspective, the world is exposed for what it is through its actions taken against Jesus. As the world crucifies the light, they are revealing that their deeds are done in darkness. They are being judged as they send the Son of God to the cross. The cross doesn't want to be with God. The cross doesn't want the light. The cross doesn't want to worship the Lord. The cross wants to be left alone. Or excuse me, the cross. The world doesn't want any of those things. The world wants to be left alone. The world wants nothing to do with God. The world wants to be uh, complete. The world wants complete autonomy to sin unhindered. That's what the world wants. And all that is confirmed by the world's actions against Jesus. As the world crucifies Christ, they are condemning themselves and showing that they are in the darkness. So that's how the cross judges the world. And then on another level, from a different perspective, the cross and resurrection and exaltation of Christ continually judges all people throughout time. All people come to the cross and they either fall and are, 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 are broken upon it or they are saved by it. The cross is the litmus test. The cross is the dividing line. All of humanity is divided into one or two groups based on the cross of Jesus Christ. All people will be judged based on their response to the cross of Christ. For those in Christ, they will hear not guilty based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to them by faith. For those not in Christ, they will hear the verdict guilty for the sins they've committed. It's just that simple. There are two verdicts. Which verdict will you hear on Judgment Day? Guilty or not guilty? If you're in Christ, you're going to hear not guilty. And if you're not in Christ, you're going to hear guilty. Now, meaning the cross, will the ruler of this world be cast out? The ruler of this world is a reference to Satan. The cross was the ultimate victory over Satan. The cross was the fulfillment of the promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. 
where the offspring, singular, of the woman was prophesied to crush the head of the serpent, meaning Satan. The decisive crushing of, the Satan, of Satan's head, of, ser- of the serpent's head, was at the cross. The cross is also a binding of Satan, as described in Revelation 21 through 3. John tells us that the reason Satan was bound and contained, meaning a limiting of his power on earth, was so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Who are the nations? The Gentiles. So after the cross, Satan's power for the nations is diminished, not eliminated, not completely eradicated, but diminished so that his binding influence, blinding influence on the nations is, is limited. It's so that God, as the general call of the gospel goes forth, can call people from all nations to himself, which is exactly what Jesus talks about in the next verse, verse 32. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, meaning the cross, will draw all people to myself. As the cross goes forth and the, earth, and, and the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem, all people are going to hear and put their belief in Christ. This passage ends with some questions from the crowd. The crowd heard Jesus and they had a couple of follow-ups. Uh, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And then also, who is this son of man? Well, the law is a reference to Old Testament scripture, and they were aware that at several points in Old Testament scripture, it talks about the Messiah having an eternal reign. For example, Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this is just one spot. There are, there are multiple places in the Old Testament that talk about an eternal reign. They are aware of that. And so they're trying to make sense of this. They're saying, okay, you're talking about dying, but scripture says it's eternal. So how does that work? They were also aware that Jesus had called himself the Son of God and that he was also now claiming to be the Christ. So that's where the confusion is. They don't get why Jesus, who is calling himself the Son of God and claiming to be the Christ, is also talking about dying. That doesn't make sense to them. They were confused. And that second question, who is the Son of Man? They don't, they're not asking who is it because Jesus has been referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's like they're saying, who is this Son of Man? It's like, okay, you're claiming to be the Son of Man. What kind of Son of Man are you claiming to be? Because this Son of Man over here doesn't have to die. This one that you're claiming to be talking is talking about dying. So what's going on? Well, Jesus answers, kind of. Um, Jesus doesn't always give direct answers. Okay? He's, he's not giving them a direct answer here either. In fact, he ignores their question. Instead of answering them, he issues a warning. This is what he says. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Jesus meets their confusion with with clarity. 
He's saying the light is right in front of you. I am the light. Believe in the light. The light is me. He's telling them, make your move. Take action now. Because the light is not always going to be here. You're not always going to have an opportunity to take action and believe in the light. And to remain in darkness is to remain in danger. Jesus' last words to them are his clearest. He says, believe, believe in the light. Believe in me that you may become sons of light and enjoy forgiveness and fellowship with God forever. He wants them to make their move while there's still time. When we look at this passage, we, we see that the crowd has formed their own impression about Jesus, their own idea. But that idea is based on a wrong impression. Now is not the time for the church to be entertaining her own wrong impression about who Jesus is or about what the kingdom of God is all about. God calls his church to stay on mission, and that mission is to go and make disciples. The kingdom of God is not of this world. We're not seeking worldly outcomes. We're seeking spiritual outcomes. We're seeking people believing in Jesus. His followers are called to die to self daily. What is it that you might be holding on to and are hesitant to throw into the ground? What, what part of your life are you still holding on to and also thinking you're going to bear fruit at the same time? What, what is it, what's that part of your life that, that you just don't want to bury yet? Because whatever that is, that is exactly where Christ calls you to deny yourself. Throw it in the ground and you'll gain everything. And finally, if there's anyone here who is not in Christ, I ask you to heed Jesus' warning because the gates of grace stand open now. But they will be shut and in their place will be a throne of judgment and you will hear one of two verdicts. If you are in Christ, you will hear not guilty. If you are not in Christ, you will hear guilty and you will be charged for your sins and thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus says, believe in the light. Believe in me. Take action. Make your move now while it's time. Believe in the light. Believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching from our Lord and Savior. Sometimes through the power of your spirit you make scripture come so alive because it feels like Jesus is, is talking directly to us. Father, we ask that we would fully let go of our life, that we would die to ourselves, that we would continually allow scripture to, to reshape whatever impression we might have about Christ and his kingdom 
into your truth. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.